Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. Later on in the show, some lessons learned from COVID-19 about how to make sure military treatment facilities have the staff they need for future emergencies. Also, what government contractors can do to help with urgent humanitarian needs in Ukraine. But we start the show this week with some innovation around a topic that takes up way, way too much of the government's time, paperwork. Just like innumerable other government agencies, the Air Force runs on paper-based forms that have to be filled out manually, and each one takes time. How much? That was a difficult question to answer until the Virginia Air National Guard's 192nd Wing saw a chance to do things differently. The wing has been experimenting with AI to take some of the repetitive tasks out of all that paperwork. And based on initial tests, the process could save the Air Force 156,000 man-hours every year, assuming we're doing it for just one form. And there are a lot of those forms in the Air Force. Chief Master Sergeant Joe Young has been leading the testing process for the 192nd. He joins us now to talk about what they've been up to as part of a project they're calling HR Smart Weapon. And Chief Young, thanks for taking the time to do this. And I wonder if you can just get us started by talking about where the idea for this whole HR Smart Weapon concept came from. Clearly, there were a discrete set of problems that you were trying to solve. Can you can you tell us where the what the genesis of all this was? Sure, Jared. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. This whole project started a couple years ago. I was a senior enlisted leader for the 192nd Operations Group. Um, one of the first things that I did was I joined the Wing Innovation Team, and one of the first trips I made on the Wing Innovation Team was to uh, a event in Las Vegas that was hosted by an AFWorks partner, and the goal was to get to educate people on how to spend squadron innovation funds and what types of things you can spend innovation funds on because there was a big uh, misunderstanding of what exactly you could use innovation funds for. So we were there, uh, it was myself, the group commander, and um, another fighter pilot, and we were tasked with coming up with for a pitch for, for innovation funds. And so each table at the at this work group had the same task. Uh, each three or four person group had to come up with a pitch for an innovative idea that they would like to uh, receive innovation funds for. So we, we sat a few minutes and we thought about some of the biggest pain points that we have in our organization. One of those things became evident that we should try to figure something out. And that was, it mostly revolved around paperwork. So we spend entirely too much time on paperwork and filling out digital forms. Even though they're digital forms, it's still paperwork. We have a particularly difficult time uh, with the onboarding process. For example, it takes it can take upwards of, of three, up to four months for a person from when they, the first day they show up to program processing, for them to get their uh, initial paycheck. In particular, for people who are coming from different organizations that are already in the military. So crossing over from uh, active duty to Air National Guard or crossing uh, from another guard unit or crossing from a different branch to the Air National Guard. Um, the pay systems, no, no particular office is, is the problem. It's the, the paperwork and the, the disparate databases that are involved and they don't necessarily talk quickly to one another. So we were trying to solve 
that problem initially, we saw that we needed to also solve the problem of, of paperwork in general. Right? We, we were filling out the same types of forms for ourselves and, and others in our organization on a daily basis, and the information we were filling out on these forms was very repetitive. Who is your supervisor? Who is your, what's your phone number? What's your supervisor's email address? Who, you know, what's your, your name, your last name, your social, everything that, that they need to know on all these forms is already known about us. And it should be, there's technology out there that should be pre-populating this information and then sending the information to the various offices. So it was a multi-faceted uh, approach that we pitched. Uh, the idea was well-received and uh, we were given feedback on how to request additional funding or initial funding for, for this innovative idea. And what they told us was we should go through the SBIR route and try to request a phase one is what they called it. Uh, we did all the paperwork and we requested a phase one. We got contacted by companies telling us that they can build what our requirement was. And we called our requirement the HR smart weapon. And so we, uh, we worked with multiple companies. We, we looked at their company history and what they were, uh, what their expertises were. And we spent a lot of hours on, on the big whiteboard trying to figure out the best company to choose for this job. And the company we, um, we selected is a company called Tackle AI. And they're a small artificial intelligence company that specializes in um, in extracting data from unstructured documents and you know making them structured documents and so essentially they could take all of our legacy hard copy forms or digital forms ingest them into their AI uh, algorithm and then create profiles for each individual in our organization and so they would they would create these profiles that had all the information that went on all of these forms. And so the next time somebody would, would bring up a form, this profile information would be automatically populated to the fields in the form. Now, whenever the form uh, didn't know something about you that the database didn't already, you know, could not figure out from, from the ingest process, it would ask the user uh, for that information. And once the, once the user uh, provided that information, you wouldn't need to provide it again in the future. So um, anything that the system knew about you, no matter which form you pulled up, it will then populate all that information on the form, making the entire paperwork process a lot easier. And, and furthermore, it would, it would pre-populate the data, allow you to, to sign it, and also route it and, and show you where that information was at any time in the route and where it was in the approval path. All that to say, it started in uh, this, this entire HR smart weapon idea started in an AppWorks workshop in Las Vegas. Uh, we've been working with the company Tackle AI. Tackle AI every week, uh, we'd meet up for an hour. They would get closer to what our vision was, and their, their task was to create a minimum viable product, kind of a, a proof of concept of what our vision was and they uh, they built that over over a phase two contract that was awarded by AppWorks. So what we have now is a proof of concept that we have tested. We had sort of like a bake-off between the 
standard way that we process um, a certain form. And we had experts test this, and we had non-experts test it. And we we had a you know a timer timing how long it took from soup to nuts how to initiate the the form and to process it across the various approval stages um, from start to finish. And so we did the same thing. We timed the same thing with the HR smart weapon tool, and we got some very promising results um, that that will uh, that will help reduce time and give it back to our airmen and our commanders to uh, to do what matters most and that's uh, and that's be in front of of your airmen be with them and and not be encumbered with all of this paperwork right and so we can get after the mission by doing less paperwork um, I definitely want to come back to the results in just a minute, but to, to stick with the process a little bit more, because I think it's important for other people who might be considering going through an SBIR process, in order to successfully get yours into that phase one, how specific did you need to be in that pitch? I mean, was it really just a matter of articulating, here's where our pain points are, can somebody give us a technology solution, or did you need to be a little bit more specific and say, here's exactly what we want the tool to do? So great question. The actual process was uh, we, we created a, a storyboard of the typical process of onboarding a, a, a new employee. And we, we showed every step of the process and the different databases um, that are involved in each step of the process. And so um, we did that. We created a um, probably a 20-page a Word document. Uh, that described uh, and answered some of the required questions that, uh, that the SBIR project uh, has. And it, we told them in greater details, this is our problem. This is our dream or this is, this is our requirement. And this is, if, if this is implemented, this is how much money we believe or this is how much time that we believe that we can save. Um, and not only that not just time this is these are the the intangible results of increased morale reduced uh burden of paperwork and and having giving commanders and airmen back back their time um that they shouldn't be spending on these forms that 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 just take up too much time and just one more boring process question here you 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 all came at this from the perspective of people who i assume are not acquisition experts or not requirements experts was there any kind of guidebook that you were able to rely on and that others in your similar situation could rely on to to help you navigate this whole process? Or did AFWorks kind of shepherd you through all that? So we had a lot of help from uh, from AFWorks, in, in particular uh, ArcWorks. So the Guard and Reserve arm of, of ArcWorks worked very closely with us. They were actually at the event in Las Vegas where we pitched the idea. And so they... Um, they were involved and they saw the initial pitch and, and they gave us feedback right there and told us, hey, this is how you do this. This is, this is what you do. Here's the forms. This is what you need to do next. Here's an example of what, what a successful one looks like. We believe that your idea is, is a strong idea and we, we want you to, to put this forward. We believe it is a very strong uh, project. And so once, once we did that, um, the typical process for SBIR phase uh, two selection is the unit puts up 
their requirement and they put up their their SBIR package. And again, we got a lot of uh, of, of help by uh, the, the Arcwork guys. So you put your package up, and part of that is a letter from somebody in your organization. We we our wing commander uh, sent a supporting uh, memo, but most of the time, the units that are successful in getting an AFWorks Phase Two contract, which is up to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is what we were uh, awarded for this Phase Two, they need to put money down and show that they have, you know, like skin in the game. It's kind of like a down payment for when you uh, when you're going to buy a house, right? You got to have something, somebody backing you saying if you default on this. You know, we're, they're going to get some money and allow them to move move the house and not lose out. And so this is this is a similar situation where AFWorks needs to know they need they need to know that you're not just going to be throwing this idea out there and getting awarded funding and just walking away. Maybe you know because people uh, move to different roles all the time. Right. People move they they move different bases and and they need some type of assurance saying that you have have you are committed to this project if they award you this seven hundred fifty thousand dollars um now this we our our wing was still very new in the process and um even though we were not able to put up any funding from our wing for this project the idea was was such a, a good idea and it was such well formed we, we were still awarded the um the contract because they believed that we would follow this through and work with the company because, um, you know, we were very passionate about it. And so this company in particular, Tackle AI, had never done work with the government before. And, you know, we were we were weighing that before we selected them. Uh, we were looking at various companies. Some of them had had experience working with the government before. And of course, if if you've ever dealt with trying to get a a software program approved in the government, there's a lot that goes into that in just the ATO to put it on a network or uh, or to process a certain type of data. So uh, we knew that since they had not worked with the government before, we were going to have to be more involved than we probably might have had to be selecting another company who had experience. But we were so uh, impressed by what the promise of their uh, artificial intelligence that we felt that it was worth uh, selecting them despite their lack of uh, having worked for the government in the past. That's Chief Master Sergeant Joe Young from the Virginia National Guard's 192nd Wing talking with us about a project they're calling HR Smart Weapon. Back in a minute to talk more on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Sturdivant. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. We're talking with Chief Master Sergeant Joe Young from the Virginia Air National Guard's 192nd Wing. Chief Young was the Wing's senior enlisted leader at the time they started the project we've been talking about, called HR Smart Weapon, and he's stuck with it despite moving on to a new duty title. As we've been discussing, the basic idea is to take a huge amount of the time suck out of the paper-based forms the Air Force uses for pretty much everything by 
using AI to automatically fill out the parts of the paperwork that don't need human attention. All right, so let's talk let's talk a bit more about results here. And and I realize you're still in testing mode here, so way too early to talk about how and if this scales across the Air Force um, uh, or even in any kind of operational setting. But based on testing so far, what does it look like this is going to be able to do for you in terms of giving airmen back their time? Okay, so the, the form we focused on for the initial testing was is what we call the form, the Air Force Form 2096. And the thing about this form is it is a multi-use form and it is used for multiple purposes. For example, uh, you have to use this form anytime you want to change your duty position, anytime you want to uh, move, uh, update your duty title, move from one office to another, anytime you want to move from one organization to another, anytime you want to upgrade uh, your skill level for a, subord a subordinate. A lot of use cases for one single form, and it's a pretty complex form. So we wanted to focus on this form initially because we knew that if they could figure out how to automate this multi-faceted form, then the other forms that we would need them to automate would be a piece of cake. And so we focused on this 2096 form. They built out the product and they focused on, on the form. And then we did a, a speed test. So we had experts and non-experts come in and we said, okay, here's here's your standard 2096. Process it as you normally do. Do everything you normally do with your current process to to get this populated and routed across the various offices and finally uploaded into uh, Mill PDS. We did that with again experts and non-experts, and for we had them do process a number of 2096s. It, I believe it was. Five 2096s that we had them process from start to finish, including routing to various offices and having them do their processing. So it took about 75 minutes from start to finish to process five 2096 forms using the legacy method. That's an average of experts and non-experts. Now, using the HR smart weapon, it took 20 minutes to do the same functions. There's still some, some time savings that can, that can be had, but the striking part is that the experts and the non-experts, the gap was very slim on the time it took the experts and non-experts to do to complete the 2096 form using the HR smart weapon prototype. So you no longer have to be a expert to do this in a, in a quick uh, amount of time. So. We had multiple people test this, and again, so legacy processing for, for five forms was 75 minutes, and HR Smart Weapon doing the same thing, auto population and, and, and routing, 20 minutes. So that's, a, that's roughly a 73% time savings for just that form, um, and, and so that's, that's the population and, and routing. Now, one thing that, that uh, we capture here is the error rate of that form. And so we we saw that these forms, 12% of the time, they're returned because they're missing data or there's incorrect data on these forms. Because they're, they're complex forms now. So there's the reduction of that. HR Smart Weapon ensures that the, the data is accurate. There's error checking um, that, that they're building into it. 
And so, you know, when you send it up, it's, it's going to be accurate. We notice a 0% error rate when using the HR smart weapon. So sometimes when you have kickbacks, the form isn't necessarily worked right away when it gets kicked back to the originating organization. Like things, things happen. It might have been sent over, you know, right before a weekend. Uh, the person in charge of it might be on leave. So just because it's kicked back, it, it might take a couple of days to get it, you know, adjusted and, and sent back to the processing organization. And so we multiplied those results across the units that could benefit from it, which is all the Air Force units and all the Air National Guard units. And we will save, we had a rough ca calculation of saving 156,000 hours annually by automating just one form, one form. And so you think about all the forms we're going to be throwing at this HR smart weapon and uh, you may save a little bit more or less depending on the other forms that are added in there. So you need to do forms for, like, like I said, for the 2096 skill level upgrade, duty position move, duty title change. Um, of course, you need to do forms for any account that you need. You need a, uh, a NIPRNET account, a CyberNet account, various other things for, for in-processing, out-processing, Retiring is there's tons of forms involved in, in retirement, and so you know we haven't we haven't tested or or started integrating those forms yet, but we plan on adding those forms uh, in further development of the HR smart weapon. So 156,000 hours across the Air Force per year, that's a, that's a lot of uh, man hours and and man weeks that uh, that you're giving back directly to. Uh, your supervisors, your airmen, your commanders, because again, it's not just the the airmen that's, that's submitting the form that's feeling the pain of this, right? When, when things get lost after, which they sometimes do after you send them to route via email, email is a terrible place to track things. Things get lost all the time. You have to sort through what's important and what's not in email. And a lot of the times you're getting things that don't necessarily apply to you. So it's easy for things to fall through the cracks in email, especially when you're trying to route and coordinate things. So HR Smart Weapon makes that easy by showing you exactly, hey, you know, it's a, it's got to go to these five offices, and right now it's at step two of these offices, and, and this is the person uh, who approved it at the previous office. So it helps you um, not only save time, but but show you can you can do analytics and show and see clearly if a certain office is getting backlogged um, and, and things are getting held up at a, for, for much too long at, at one office, you can, the commander can make those decisions to shift resources to plus up that office with, with additional personnel so they can be more efficient. Or we can look into other ways of continually um, improving that process. And just to just to hammer a little bit more on on why this conceptually is is easy to imagine getting expanded to other forms, it's really the same manual work that's going into all of these different forms, right? That the repetitive work tasks, things like filling in basic details the Air Force already knows about you, name, EDIPI, uh, duty station, things like that, right? It, it would it would just be doing that on different forms, more or less, right? Exactly. Yes, sir. It's it's going to populate everything that it knows about you. And then sometimes it's not going to know these, this information about you. Uh, so it'll ask the user sometimes, hey, 
you know, we don't know this field, so we need you to, to populate this field. And once the user populates that field, it is then saved in their profile. And if they have to do that form again or another form that has that same field, it'll pre-populate that for them. And even though you said there's a essentially zero error rate here, I would imagine that the amount of time you can actually save with this tool depends on how much you're willing to trust the AI. Because you're gonna, if you're going to spend more time to go back and double check all of the system's work to make sure it's accurate, you're not gaining as much as if you really do feel like you can trust that it did everything properly. So is there going to be a bit of a trust curve or learning curve to get commanders and even senior enlisted leaders to accept that it's doing everything it's supposed to do? No question. Absolutely. You know, some of us have, have never, we don't know what the term AI is um, because our jobs, that term doesn't exist in, in, in a lot of the jobs that we do in the Air Force. Artificial intelligence, um, it's hard to trust. It's, it's not real. It's, it's, it's artificial, right? Artificial intelligence. So I, I think it's natural to not trust something like that right off the bat. And I, I fully expect people to be hesitant and, and not want to trust it right away. Even myself, I, you know, just because you, you're telling me that this is, this is true, I'm going to trust, but we have this term called trust, but verify. So it's going to take me a little bit longer at first. And so the results might be a little bit slower um, initially because I'm, I'm hesitant and I want to, I want to double check everything before I hit submit. And once I, you know, once I have a level of confidence and once, once uh, the commanders and the users have a level of confidence that, hey, this does what it says it, it does, and it is accurate, and you can trust me, I mean, sky's the limit. It's just going to continue to, as soon as we add forms, it, you know, we're going to have that level of trust with the system that it, it is filling out accurate um, and current information, and it'll, it'll save so much time and money across the Air Force. This doesn't just apply to military forms. We have a lot of civilians that have very similar forms that they have to do that would benefit from from the same uh, HR Smart Weapon time savings. Chief Master Sergeant Joe Young of the Virginia National Guard's 192nd Wing. Obviously, a lot of challenges ahead before something like this gets approved for use on an operational basis, but hugely encouraging to hear a story of frontline personnel identifying a problem and, and getting some solutions at least into the acquisition cycle. Short break, and when we come back, some lessons from the pandemic about how to make sure military hospitals and clinics can meet their missions when emergency situations call their clinicians elsewhere. It's on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. We're back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. During the COVID pandemic, staffing the nation's healthcare facilities has been a challenge pretty much everywhere, but the military's hospitals and clinics face some special circumstances. Military clinicians whose day jobs were at military treatment facilities could be pulled away for other COVID-19 missions with little or no notice. That's one factor that led 26 out of 30 MTFs the DOD Inspector General spoke to to say staffing problems were their biggest challenge during the pandemic. Andre Brown is Program Director for Military Health Care and Operations at the DOD IG's office. He talked with me about some of the findings. In some cases, these challenges had you know, pre-existed um, to the pandemic. However, the pandemic exacerbated those problems. 
The officials that we spoke to reported that they did not receive additional staffing during the pandemic. And while, you know, they they also had to conduct the COVID-19 response requirements, such as testing, vaccinations, and, and contact tracing. They also had to do those missions with existing uh, medical personnel, which which took away from other daily functions. Um, and then also, you know, they stated that recruiting and hiring it during the pandemic was extremely difficult. They, you know, attributed that difficulty mostly to non-competitive salaries, especially for nurses and specialty care, and, and that was, you know, due to the, a long, drawn-out hiring process. What what did MTF officials tell you about how, if at all, that these shortages actually impacted the delivery of care? So when we spoke to the, the MTF officials, they often talked about um, the staffing and manpower shortages combined with uh, long work hours, right, which was you know uh, commiserate with the the private sector, obviously resulted in severe uh, burnout and fatigue. Um, they also talked about that you know patient safety incidents had increased um, and that the the lack of staff or overworked staff could potentially compromise the quality of care to patients the burnout and fatigue and you know in some cases caused some staff to quit which further exacerbated um, the shortages and then the requirement to perform that additional MTF COVID mission with you know, your testing, your vaccinations, uh, contract tracing resulted in reduced healthcare services and in some instances delayed healthcare preventive care to, to your your regular patients. And then there was a couple other areas uh, such as reduced staff training, the ability for the, the workers to maintain the proficiency of the skills, which, you know, affects the overall care of your patient, and then also uh, patient referral to the civilian network. The MTFs were inundated with appointments, and so if patients wanted to be seen, they had the, the option to be able to go to the civilian network, um, but because everyone was trying to get uh, appointments, they were often not be able to be seen in their local area, so they may have to drive one to three hours away from their local area. I want to focus a little bit on the on the military provider side of this. I think as most of our listeners know, in an MTF setting, it's kind of a blend of military providers, civilian providers, contract providers. A lot of the military folks got pulled out to go do other COVID missions, and, and I think the, the restructuring of the MTF system has kind of created this unique situation where the MTF administrators don't actually control their entire workforce. Their their military folks can get pulled out kind of at any time, which seems like that makes it extra important for the military departments to coordinate with the MTFs to make sure that they actually have the people that they need, or at least conduct some kind of balancing to decide where these folks are needed most. How much of that coordination happened in this case, and, and does DOD need to do better on that front? Yes, this is a, an area where we, where we identified that, you know, there needs to be some improvement and where we made recommendations to the department to improve. We didn't necessarily designate a degree of, you know, whether it was good or bad, but we, you know, talking to the MTF officials, obviously they indicated uh, where there was a severe lack of coordination between the services and the DHA about personnel who were diverted uh, from the MTF. Obviously, you know, they, you know, stated in some cases they were, weren't fully kept in the loop about the mission. You know, they weren't told until the last minute that these personnel would be 
going somewhere else, which left you know the MTF in a very bad position. So we were making uh, recommendations to you know improve that coordination uh, between service personnel, DHA, and the MTFs to allow, to allow the MTFs to plan for a shortage of personnel due to deployments in the future. And then also the coordination for receiving backfills to replace deployed personnel, uh, that was an area of improvement as well. Because in some cases, the MTF, they applied for backfills, and in some cases, they were denied. Uh, in other cases, they applied for a certain number. For example, in one case, they sent a request for eight personnel. They only received you know, one of the eight, so they didn't receive the number they requested. So uh, obviously puts the MTF in a bad position. And, and I think part of the ingredient here is is the military services had already, for a few years now, I think, planned on reducing their overall number of military medical billets. And I, th- I think the plan there was to replace those with civilian providers. But from what you've said earlier, it sounds like they've been challenged on that front, just hiring those folks to, to fill the slots. Is that part of this? Correct. So in 2021, the DOD issued a plan for the billet reduction in response to Section 719 of NDAA 2020, uh, which included the plans to hire for civilian and contract personnel for those exact positions. However, it's currently on on pause because Congress wants to to relook at that. So uh, Section 732 of NDAA 2020 requires a further assessment of that plan. Um, You know, obviously during this particular report or evaluation, we had MTF officials who expressed their concern about uh, military billet reductions. A lot of the times, those billets that you know the military member had vacated, a billet you know someone was not, um, or the billet was left unfilled, or else you know no one had come in behind them to replace them, or they weren't weren't able to replace it with a civilian uh, personnel. So you know it still left the the, the NTF short. But we are monitoring progress of the the billet reduction plan, but we do not have an update at this point. Got it. Um, just down to our last couple minutes here, and maybe you can spend that time talking about some of the recommendations that you made to the department. You've touched on a couple of them already, but but fill us in a little bit more on what the IG um, recommended and, and how the department has responded. Uh, we made a couple of uh, recommendations to the Defense Health Agency and then to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for uh, Health Affairs. So the Defense uh, Health Agency we made recommendations to address the staffing challenges, streamlining the uh, the hiring process to fill the, the civilian staffing positions, to look at, at salaries for nurses. Obviously, in the uh, private sector, they're hiring at a higher rate, and so being able to look and see if we can hire at those salaries so we can bring in you know, higher quality nurses. Uh, assessing uh, the ability the MTFs to receive augmentation from for staff from the reserve components during pandemics. Uh, we also wanted them to look at uh, manpower uh, requirements for COVID-19 um, and identify medical personnel requirements during the MTFs for future pandemics. With the ASD for health affairs, the big things for personnel, obviously, with staff burnout and such, we wanted them to look at or, or develop, actually, a DOD policy for maximum hours work, maximum shifts, um, the coverage of duties for uh, staff working in, in the MTFs to reduce the impact on the staff. And then lastly, the ASD um, health affairs was in charge of 
the military health system COVID-19 AAR. Nothing has been done on that at this point, so we made a recommendation to either direct or create a, a new or existing working group to look at this and monitor the milestones. The AAR was conducted from April 2020 to January 2021, which resulted in 23 key lessons learned and 79 recommendations. Uh, we determined that 13 of the 23 lessons learned could address MTF challenges in this report. And sorry, one last quick follow-up. Did did you did your work this time around get into at all whether DOD has the hiring and, and salary authorities it needs to actually bring those clinicians in at higher pay rates, or is that another project for another day? Yeah, that's another project. We identified the, the issue, but that was we did not go into the details of that in this report. That's Andre Brown, Program Director for Military Healthcare Operations at the DOD IG's office. We'll post a link to the report we've been talking about at federalnewsnetwork.com. Short break, and when we come back, a call to defense contractors to help Ukraine with not just weapons, but humanitarian aid. More info on how those companies can help in just a minute on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Congress has okayed billions of dollars in security assistance for Ukraine, but one group thinks the U.S. defense industry is well-positioned to provide not just weapons, but humanitarian aid, too. The needs on the ground range from search and rescue equipment to medical supplies and satellite phones. A collection of Arizona-based industry groups is helping to identify those needs, ask for donations from contractors, and get the supplies where they need to go. And we're joined now by Lindy Smith, the chairwoman and co-founder of the West Valley Defense Alliance, to talk more about it. Lindy, start us off by talking a bit about what you're actually asking members of the Arizona defense industry to do today for Ukraine. On behalf of the Arizona Defense Coalitions, which includes the West Valley Defense Alliance, which I head up, we are encouraging Congress to enforce, or I would say encourage the United Nations to enforce green corridors in Ukraine currently. There's a lot of civilians that are still trying to evacuate out of Ukraine, especially in eastern Ukraine, that unfortunately have no pathway to do so. There's still many green corridors that were agreed upon between Ukraine and Russia that unfortunately are seeing a lot of artillery attacking civilian bands that are coming out of that area. And it's making really hard, obviously, for people to come in and out. And so first and foremost, we are trying to help enforce the green corridors in Ukraine. Additionally, right now, we're seeing a lot of support that is still needed for civilians in Ukraine trying to evacuate. The United States has done a great job of supporting military aid to Ukraine, but we're seeing a lot of needs that are still happening within the civilians on the ground. A lot of this has to do with materials for health, you know, gauze, um, medical equipment, other things like civilian drones, satellite phones and walkie-talkies. Gas for vehicles are still in very short supply and is obviously limiting the ability for those evacuating to do so safely. And so we are reaching out to defense industry across the nation to ask if you are willing to donate, if you are willing to even sell any of these types of equipment, that you please get in contact with us because we have a pipeline into Ukraine with a lot of great organizations that are doing work with the civilians on the ground. And we would love to help get those resources into the hands that really need them. Is there anything special about the defense industry in Arizona that you feel like makes your companies especially well postured to provide this sort of civilian crisis support for a situation like this? 
you know, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily anything super special, but just that Arizona has the benefit that we have a really strong defense community that is very united through what are known as the Arizona Defense Coalitions. These coalitions were actually started back in 2015 under Senator McCain's leadership, in which he was trying to get a better pipeline of knowledge from defense industry and military installations into his office and up to the Hill in D.C., What spurred out of that initiative and conversation were the Arizona Defense Coalitions that not only did advocacy back in D.C., but also worked with each other as regional organizations to provide much needed solutions, whether that was partnerships to crises like the COVID-19 pandemic or like what we're seeing today with the crisis in Ukraine. We come together as defense industry to figure out how to solve problems. And so Obviously, seeing the crisis as it exists today, we came to the table and actually got to hear from a citizen who had family in Ukraine and was trying to evacuate them, heard a lot of the struggles that she faced trying to evacuate her family and started to rally defense industry around the idea of how do we get these much needed resources into the hands of those that need it? And so we have a platform in Arizona already, and now we're just trying to reach nationally to say, if you're willing to support no matter where you are, whether it's Arizona, whether it's Florida, whether it's New York please get in contact with us because this issue is obviously not regional and we're all here to help. And so if you can, we definitely encourage you to do so. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners across the country might be surprised to hear that there's an aid pipeline to Ukraine that runs through Arizona, of all places. Talk a bit about the mechanics of how that pipeline actually works, your relationships, whatever relationships you have with folks on the ground in Ukraine, and what level of confidence folks should have that whatever they supply is actually going to get into the right hands. So a lot of this all started, as I mentioned, from actually an employee of Acronis SES, which is who I formerly work with. She had done a lot of work evacuating her own family. So she went over to evacuate her own family and then worked with other organizations in Ukraine to actually evacuate over 120 people um, out through humanitarian aid. They worked with a number of different groups, everything from the Red Cross to smaller organizations and churches to actually help support these folks. And so Uh, They're currently in the process of starting up a formal GoFundMe and 501c3 to aid this effort. So it will be a formal organization. The initial response was very much crisis management and very much reactionary. And now um, that they're actually getting a good amount of support, they're starting up the formal organization to make sure that people understand that it is a trusted effort and one that they can feel confident in getting those supplies to. How are Ukrainians communicating the sort of demand signals back to you? And what are some of the most acute needs right now? So a lot of what we're seeing is medical equipment needs. And so we're hearing it through actual family members and folks that are actually on the ground in Ukraine and have either um, are there themselves or family members of those that are now in the United States. A lot of what is needed, as I mentioned, is medical equipment. So whether it's gauze or gas masks, even search and rescue equipment, uh, satellite drones, body armor and protective gear, anything that can essentially ensure that they're getting out of Ukraine safely, right, is what is needed. They're not looking for tactical equipment or anything that could be used to fight. They're just looking for protective equipment. And so we're hearing that from the ground up. You know, we've heard everything at this point to just tires. Um, Tires have become an increasingly big demand because of the rough terrain and hazards that they're having to face. Um, They're not able to actually fix those um, on the road to support their transportation vehicles. And so, you know, it's across the board of these demands and, uh, you know, very just core to transportation and health. Speaking of transportation, uh, can you talk about the logistics of getting this material into Ukraine? Do you have mechanisms set up for that to just actually airlift or I don't know how you're doing it, but actually get it to the people on the ground? 
I would say it varies across the area, right? So in eastern Ukraine, um, much of the territories are Russian controlled. And so right now we're actually having a really hard time getting any amount of resources into Russian controlled territories. They are, you know, taking that materials and preventing it from getting to civilians on the ground there. Um, And at this point, they've actually resorted to foot traffic to get in different materials and help evacuate people out of eastern Ukraine. Otherwise, with regards to getting things primarily into Odessa, which is where my colleague is closely connected, they're not seeing a lot of conflict getting resources into that area. So basically, we get into those areas of Ukraine that are still Ukrainian controlled and relatively safe and free of conflict. And then it's a lot of smaller transportation vehicles, um, sometimes even to the point of foot that are then getting it further into eastern Ukraine. So anyone within the sound of our voices who does feel like they're in a position to help, how can they get in touch with you? So would recommend you to reach out to myself as part of the West Valley Defense Alliance. We're on LinkedIn and posting regularly about the efforts that we're doing. So I would encourage you to take a look at us there. My contact information, I'm happy to share um, and have posted via this podcast um, or radio. And so I just encourage you to get in touch with me. I will put you directly in contact with the organizations that are doing the work in Ukraine so that you can see they are trusted and secure. We are merely a a vocal podium, right, to get people in contact with those that are doing the real work. So I encourage you to, to get in contact with me and then I can make sure you're getting in touch with the right people in Ukraine. Lindy Smith is chairwoman and co-founder of the West Valley Defense Alliance. Earlier in the hour, we talked with the DOD Inspector General's office on lessons learned from COVID-19 for staffing at military treatment facilities and the Virginia Air National Guard on how AI might help cut airmen's paperwork burden by hundreds of thousands of hours every year. If you missed any of those conversations, this week's full show, as always, can be found online at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD or in our podcast feed. Subscribe to On DOD wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Jared Serbid. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.